Welcome to Creating a Buzz About Health podcast with Paula Carnell. Hello, hello, hello. So this episode is coming to you from Westonbert Arboretum. I thought it would be lovely to share one of my favourite places. So although it's springtime, I'm walking through some wonderful crunchy leaves. I couldn't resist And I'm surrounded by beech trees, plane trees, pine trees, cedars. The sunlight is coming through the trees. And so the grass is luminous green. It's a weekday. It's Tuesday. There's not many people around. The kids are at school. Everyone else is at work. But I try and sneak in here whenever I can. If I've got to come up to the Cotswolds area for business or today it was for my dentist I pop in to the Arboretum. I treated myself a number of years ago to a membership and it's I don't know 40 pounds a year so for a few years I would only come once a year and it would be on my way up or on my way back down from my herbal medicine course our annual gathering in October But over the last couple of years, I've had more business. I've been in a mastermind up in Birmingham. I've had clients up this way. And so I'm coming up and down more often. And my dentist moved here, so I had to move up to see him. And so it's wonderful because I'm getting more use out of my membership. And every time I come, I allow myself sort of an hour to two hours and I wander around and I do a different route. And because it's spring, there's actually a completely different feel. I've normally come in the autumn months or over the winter and always mean to come back at different times through the year, but things happen and I don't get to do it. So it's wonderful to walk through here in the spring sunshine. It's cold, cold enough for a coat, but warm enough that I'm not having to be all zipped up. And it's just magical to walk through these ancient trees. So I'm in the original, the old Arboretum. My favourite bit or my sort of old routine was to go around the newer part where there's the big larch trees and there's the the treetop walk, the bridge. And I would walk a route around there. But the last time I came, it was autumn and I didn't have so long. So I thought, oh, I'll just have a quick walk around the old Arboretum. And I found a spot where I could just lay down on the mossy grass and just listen to the birds. It was absolutely heavenly. And also really important because I was grounding. And I have felt, particularly the last few years, that whenever I feel... I've overdone it, I'm a bit tired, I'm run down, disconnected from my body and from nature. If I can find a place where I can just lay down, close my eyes, and particularly if I can feel the sun on my body, that's always a lovely treat. But just to feel the ground and try and have my heart, my heartbeat, my pulse, 
reconnecting with the Earth's pulse. And I'm now learning as well that this is so important, not just intuitively, it feeling good, but now the science is proving it. It's showing us that the Earth has a resonance, we have a resonance. There's all these electrical circuits inside our body. And by wearing insulated shoes, we very rarely come into contact with the land, land, with the earth. And yet that's exactly what we should be doing. And so that disconnect, it causes disharmony within our bodies. And so the importance of reconnecting with nature, not just through walking through woods or sitting in your garden or looking at it, it's actually being in it, really connecting with it, putting your hands in the soil, walking barefoot, actually becoming part of nature, immersing yourself in it. I've stood now at the top of a, a grand ancient avenue and I can see some beautiful cedars, some beaches. Um, I think that's an ash, maybe another ash. And it's just stunning. And you're looking right down through the avenue, a lovely big wide grassy avenue, still with dried leaves on. And the other end of the avenue is the entrance to Westenburt School. I'm not sure if it is still Westenburt School, but I can see the gates. And it's just stunning. There's not a soul in sight. And I'm just really enjoying this beautiful place. can hear the birds there's planes going overhead I've come away from the roadside so I'm not hearing the road so much now it was here as well that I first had the realization about using wooden beehives and as a natural beekeeper it seems obvious that we'd want to use nice wooden beehives they look natural they give good insulation for the bees if it's a good wood, if it's nice and thick. But when you see the trees that are cut down to produce tree hives or beehives, it really does chill me. There are some stunning western red cedar trees here. They really are stunning. They're giants, absolute giants. And you look at one of these trees and realise that there could be... I don't know, 50, 100 hives made from one tree. So, wow, that's quite, quite economic that you could get so many hives from a tree. But then when you look at the tree and you think once that's taken down, it can't be replaced. How many hundreds of years did it take to grow to be that size? And no matter how many saplings are being planted around the world now it's not keeping up with the number of trees that are being felled so when i first met emre yildrin he runs his father's business or with his father apime beehives and they're based in turkey and when i first met him we were both judging for an international honey competition and 
we introduced each other. He said, oh, I make beehives. And I was very excited. I said, oh, what kind of hives do you make? And he says, plastic ones. And I instantly recoiled. I was like, oh, why would anybody want a plastic beehive? But I'm polite. And so I thought I'd ask a bit more. And he explained to me that his father's company had started off making wooden beehives. And they were selling them all around Eastern Europe and into China. And then some laws changed in China where it became illegal to make non-essential items out of wood. And so they had to get around this and think, gosh, what else can we make beehives from? Well, we all know the disadvantage of plastic is it lasts forever. But if you're making beehives, that becomes an advantage to have a hive that lasts forever and won't rot down and doesn't need replacing. And so together with his father, they developed these amazing new hives. I was still a bit sceptical. I mean, they look like plastic. They are plastic. And do we really want to be encouraging more plastic into the world? But then I have another friend who's a a bee scientist um, in Belgrade. And he's been experimenting with Emery's hives. And he found that the insulation was excellent and that his colonies were surviving better through the winter months because these plastic hives were lovely and thick and the bees could regulate the temperature inside much better. So there was a a big tick. They really liked the hives. But the real change in my mind came when I visited Cocos Keeling Islands in the middle of the Indian Ocean. Now it's an Australian territory. It's very remote. We flew there from Jakarta, then we had to fly to Christmas Island, and then we took another flight across to Cocos Keeling Island. And I will share the story of why I went there on another episode. But this is a tropical coral atoll. So it's about 26 islands that go around a lagoon, and the highest point is 10 foot, and it's covered in palm trees. Absolutely hundreds of thousands of palm trees there's a few beautiful ancient trees the name of which I can never remember so I will look it up and write it in the show notes but there's these beautiful trees and we actually saw wild bees living in some of these old trees and the beekeepers there they've got some flow hives which come from Australia they have Langstroth hives which again were being shipped in from Australia and they had the Appy May hives these plastic hives Now, the irony is that Cocos Keeling is not very well known of at all. It has barely any tourist um, industry. There aren't hotels. There's a few bed and breakfasts. um, And it's obviously not on everybody's um, wish list to go visit anyway. And it was only through some weird chance happenings in my own life that we found ourselves there. So you've got these beehives and they had the plastic ones. And I was curious to why did they have them and how were they finding them? Now, on Cocos Keeling, it's really, really humid. The temperature is between 25 and 35 degrees year round. And you have storms and you're on the sea. So you've got the salty sea air coming in. And the problem is that because it's so remote and they have one ship every six weeks that will deliver food, they have weekly flights, but only one or two days a week. So the expense of shipping replacement wooden beehives was just too much. 
and particularly if the heat and the humidity was rotting the wood. It's like a honey factory there. All year round, the bees are busy and they're making honey. So the hives get really full of honey. There's a lot of humidity from the environment as well as from just the sheer number, the volume of bees that you have inside each hive. So to them, the plastic hives were just incredible. But the irony was the island, the, one of the main reasons it has any fame or recognition at all was due to the fact that some scientists had visited in the early 2000s to record the amount of plastic that was being washed up across the oceans. And on the outer reef of the southern island on, of the Cocos Keeling Islands, there was a vast amount of plastic that had been washed up. I mean, huge, 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 and giant pieces of plastic and rubbish. There were big refrigerators, there were cookers, there were bits of ships. We actually took a visit there. It's not an easy part to reach and the sea is really rough on that side. So, of course, it's not attracting any boats or or anybody to sail around. So it's not an area you get to see. But we saw hundreds of thousands of plastic bottles and flip-flops and just all the normal debris that people are throwing away. So to think that an island that had its 15 minutes of fame because of the sheer volume of plastic washed up and yet to protect their bees and to make it economically viable for their beekeepers, having plastic frames were perfect. So here I am stood amongst some giant western red cedar trees and I'm just hoping that they can be left they can be spared and not just the ones here I mean obviously we're in an arboretum so they're not going to cut these down to make beehives but around the world there are western red cedar trees that are just being felled for that sheer demand of having a beehive so I'd like you to have a think about all the things that you buy and that you replace that are made of wood And how sustainable is that? We think of wood as a really sustainable natural product and we all love our wooden houses and wooden furniture and wooden all kinds of things. But should we start thinking about other materials and the sustainability of the materials that we do use? So I'm going to carry on enjoying the rest of my walk around the Arboretum but I just wanted to share with you some of my thoughts whilst I was here. So I look forward to sharing more thoughts next time. This podcast has been produced and edited by the wonderful Bee Brook and the music was created especially for me by Raya. Thank you very much. You have to become yourself. Join us Open next time on Creating a Buzz Open About Health podcast with Paula Carnell. Buzz you later.